This time of year, a lot of us living in this uh, frozen wasteland we call Wisconsin are hungry for the sun. So today is a gift, isn't it? It really is. So yeah, they're just amazing. Lisa and I were out for a walk a couple of weeks ago. Um, and uh, it was that day it had warmed up a little bit at least. We were walking down the streets. I think we were in downtown Cedarburg, and we realized we were both thinking the same thing at the same time of just how good it felt to have the sun soaking into us. Um, the sun is an amazing thing, if you think about it. If you are ever having a bad day and you're wondering what in the world you could possibly be thankful for, the sun would be a good option. So if there's nothing else, there's always the sun, right? It's considered, you might not know this, a yellow dwarf star. So on uh, the scale as, as stars go, it's on the small side, but it does an amazingly good job. It comes up every morning, it goes down every night, uh, it warms us up, it gives us light. That rhymed. And uh, it makes photosynthesis work, uh, without which none of us would be here. So that's a good thing too. So suppose, just suppose, that you wanted to create a light as bright as the sun. And if you did that, you decided you wanted to do it by building a fixture using 100-watt light bulbs, the number of light bulbs you would need would be 386 with 22 zeros after that. I don't know. <laughs> Anyways, it's probably not a good science fair project if you were thinking of doing that. All to say, what a gift from God the Son is, right? And what a picture of his love for us, too. In a book called uh, Relationships by Les and Leslie Parrott, they write, the sun only shines just as God only loves. It is the nature of the sun to shine, to offer warmth and light, and it is the nature of God to love. We are free to get away from the sun. We can lock ourselves in a dark room, but we do not keep the sun from shining just because we put ourselves in a place where it cannot reach us. So it is with God's love. We can reject it, but God keeps on loving us. No matter what our choices, God still loves. That's pretty good news, isn't it? I like that. And here's the thing. Jesus said we are to shine like the sun. So what's that supposed to mean? Well, today is the last Sunday of the first block of what is called ordinary time in the church year. And in case you missed this back when we talked about it in December, what we're doing this year is we're following the church calendar and basing our sermons for each Sunday on the scripture readings that are assigned by that calendar. So this is something new for us here. We don't usually do this. But in doing that, over the course of the year, we'll cover the life of Jesus and the emergence of the church. Well, this Wednesday is Ash Wednesday, which begins a new season in the church year, the season of Lent. So we're going to be gathering here 6.30 Wednesday evening to encounter Jesus as we usher in this new season and to let the Holy Spirit begin the work that God wants to do in us throughout Lent. So I hope you can join us for that, 6.30 here Wednesday night. Today's passage in the gospel is kind of like a bridge, you could say, connecting Jesus' life and ministry up to this point to everything that's going to come in the weeks ahead. So while this is still a part of ordinary time, 
what happens in today's passage is anything but ordinary. This passage describes what's called the transfiguration of Jesus. But as always, the Bible isn't just telling us what happened. It's not just giving us information. Through the story, Jesus is inviting us to shine like the sun. And that's what we're going to talk about today. So are you ready? Let's pray. So Holy Spirit, just come now. We just just rest for a minute in your warmth, in your love, Lord. Thank you for pouring it out on us today. And thank you for what you want to do in us today as we hear your word, as we let it do its work in us. Holy Spirit, come and draw us into more of your love so that we really can shine like the sun. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> here, uh, or here, I am going to read from Matthew 17, or yeah, Matthew 17, 1 to 9. Uh, says, and after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it's good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. Well, if you take a tour of Israel today, uh, one of your stops might, might be Mount uh, Tabor, which is the hill in the picture here. Uh, it's this round hill in central Galilee. Uh, if you arrive by bus uh, with a group, you'll get out at the base of the hill, and then you'll take a taxi up to the top. And they say God is especially pleased with the Mount Tabor taxi drivers because a whole lot of praying goes on by those riding in the taxis during the few minutes spent hurtling up that narrow winding road you can see in the picture there that goes up to the top. Mount Tabor is the traditional site of the transfiguration of Jesus. Of course, like some of the other traditional sites in Israel, it may or may not be where it actually happened. A lot of biblical scholars think that it was more likely to have taken place on Mount Hermon, which is this big mountain in the background there, and that is the highest mountain in the whole area. Uh, and it's also only a few minutes from Caesarea Philippi, which is where Jesus had just come from with his disciples. So it, it's kind of a logical place for it. Mount Hermon is, however, much more remote and inaccessible than Mount Tabor. It would be really difficult to get tourists to Mount Hermon. Hence, Mount Tabor is a traditional site, right? Um, it has probably more to do with money than archaeology. Where the transformation happened, though, while an interesting question, in the end, really doesn't matter all that much. Uh, if it did, Matthew or one of the other gospel writers would have told us where it happened. 
But what Matthew does make a point of telling us is when it happened. And that's unusual. Matthew doesn't usually do that in his gospel. He doesn't usually point out a particular or a specific time for the events that he's talking about. But Matthew tells us this event took place six days after Jesus had been with his disciples in Caesarea Philippi. Or more importantly, six days after the very first time that Jesus told his disciples that he would have to suffer and die, because that's what happened at Caesarea Philippi. There is a connection, there is a link between Jesus' suffering and death and what happened that day up on the mountain. And that connection matters to you and me. You know, something we talk about quite a bit here is the story in which we find ourselves living. You know, we all have a story that we're living in. That story is shaped by our upbringing, by our family, our education, our culture, our religious experience. It's shaped by all sorts of things. Now, we don't necessarily think of it as a story we're living in. We just think it's reality. We just think it's the way things are. But actually, it's not, or at least not entirely. So when you come to know Jesus, when you begin to follow him as his disciple, then little by little, he draws you into a new story, a different story, a different way of of seeing God, a different way of seeing the world around you and all of the people in it, a different way of seeing yourself. The story Jesus draws us into is the true story. Not just because it's right and the others are wrong so much, but because his story leads to life and none of the others can do that. For instance, some of us, when we first came to Vineyard, were living in a story where we were afraid of God. You know, we, we imagined that God was watching us from heaven, shaking his head, disappointed at best, maybe even really angry at us, uh, uh, angry about much of who we were and even and besides what we were doing. Um, others of us, when we first came to the vineyard, figured that if there was a God at all, he was far too busy with big important things to do to pay attention to little old me, right? But little by little, Jesus is leading us into a new story, a different story, a true story. A story in which God is passionately in love with each and every one of us. A God who's always at work in all things for our good. A God who knows you intimately and who wants to be known intimately by you. Well, Jesus' disciples, including his inner circle uh, made up of Peter, James, and John, were living in a story too. The story they were living in was rooted in what was for them the Bible, the Old Testament scriptures, which were often referred to as the law and the prophets. It was kind of a shorthand way of describing the whole Old Testament, the law and the prophets. But their story had also been shaped by their national and cultural identity as Jews and by the fact that the Jewish people had been dominated and oppressed and occupied by foreign powers for a long, long time. And it had been shaped by their brokenness as people, too. 
So in the story in which Peter and James and John were living, they were looking forward to the coming of a Messiah who would deliver their nation from foreign powers and reestablish the political kingdom of Israel. He would drive out all of the wicked people. He would bring prosperity. He would bring abundance to Israel. And they were looking for a glorious Messiah, you could say, who would bring his glory to their land. So they went up on the mountain with Jesus, and sure enough, Jesus was shining with glory, just like they imagined. And Moses and Elijah were there too. To a good Jew back then, Moses represented the law. And Elijah represented the prophets. So together, you know, you've got the law and the prophets there. And, and both of them, Moses and Elijah, were also tied in the Jewish prophetic expectation to the end of the age and the coming of God's kingdom. So Peter, up there on the mountain, thinks he's got this whole thing figured out. Just six days earlier, Jesus had asked Peter, who do you say that I am? And Peter had blurted out, you are the Christ. You, know, you are the Messiah. And so now Peter's thinking, see, I was right. I've got this all figured out. We've got the big three here, Moses, Elijah, and the Messiah. Let's set up camp so you three can strategize together. I'll help, and we'll plan out how this whole kingdom thing is going to roll out, and we get the Romans out of here, right? And I love verse 5 says he was still speaking. You know, <laughs> Peter's still jabbering on in his excitement. When behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from cloud said basically, be quiet, Peter. I mean, said it more nicely. He said, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. The disciples hit the dirt, terrified out of their wits until Jesus came and touched them and said, you don't have to be afraid. Get up. And when they did, only Jesus was there. So what was all that about? Well, there are a lot of things you can draw from this event, uh, a lot of different things you can draw from it, and I think they all have value. But what I felt like God highlighted for today as I was studying this was how Jesus was leading his disciples into a new story, a very different story from the one they had been living in, and how he's doing the same thing with us. In his commentary on this passage, a New Testament scholar N.T. Wright points out how the story of the transfiguration offers a strange parallel and contrast to the account of Jesus' crucifixion. Here on the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus is revealed in glory. There, on a hill outside Jerusalem, Jesus was revealed in shame. Here his clothes were shining white. There they've been stripped off. Here he's flanked by Moses and Elijah, two of Israel's greatest heroes. There he's flanked by two criminals. Here a bright cloud overshadows him. There darkness comes upon the land. Here, Peter blurts out how wonderful it all is. There, Peter is hiding in shame after denying even knowing Jesus. You know, here, a voice from God himself declares that Jesus is his wonderful son. There, a pagan soldier declares in surprise 
that this really was God's son. Six days earlier, Jesus had told his disciples he was going to suffer and die, but they didn't get it. They were so caught up in the story in which they were living that they couldn't hear what Jesus was saying. They thought the path to the glory of the kingdom of God was an upward path, a path of success and victory and power. They thought of Jesus as just the next step or the next piece of the story in which they were already living. But Jesus was leading them into a new story, a different story. They would eventually come to see that the glory of God was most fully revealed in Jesus dying on the cross. And that the reason Jesus was shining with glory on the mountain that day was because Jesus already lived and always lived in the way of the cross. See, the path to the glory of God is not an upward path. It's a downward path. It's a path of self-denial, of pouring yourself out in love for others, even and especially at your own expense. God said, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. And when they got up, Moses and Elijah, the law and the prophets were gone. I believe a point that was being made by God that day was that nothing other than Jesus, not even good things, can be what shapes the story we live in. Listen to Jesus. Jesus, and only Jesus, is the way, the truth, and the life. Let Jesus shape your story. You know, I mentioned earlier how many of us originally lived in a story where God is either angry and judgmental toward us, or he's too busy to notice us, if he even exists at all. So Jesus has been leading us into this different story in which God knows us and loves us and wants only good for us. But we're also all impacted by the story that permeates our culture today. If you go to the movies or watch TV or read things on the internet or just talk to people, you're going to hear phrases like, be true to yourself, or you can be anything, or follow your heart, or find yourself. In fact, this story is so pervasive the story that those phrases speak about is so pervasive that we don't even think it's a story. We just think it's the way things are, the right way to look at life, the best way to find life. This story has a name in the world of philosophy. It's called expressive individualism. And the main idea of the story, the main idea behind those phrases that we hear is that the purpose of life or the path to happiness and fulfillment is to discover your own individual self. Basically, focus on you, discover your own individual self, discover your own desires, and then express those to the world regardless of what anyone else thinks, regardless of what your family or friends or God or anyone else might say because you have to be true to yourself, right? That's what matters most in this story. And it's a very seductive story. It sounds so right, but it's a lot like the story in which Jesus' disciples had been living. 
that upward path kind of story of seeing what you want and going after it and so that you can grab hold of life and be fulfilled and have the glory. The problem is it doesn't work. It doesn't produce what it promises. The story is a lie that our whole culture has bought into, and it leaves us empty, unfulfilled, unhappy, stressed out, anxious, and lonely, which I would say describes our culture pretty well, wouldn't you? Yeah. Instead, Jesus invites us into what seems like a very counterintuitive story. If you want to find life, then what? Lose it, right? If you want to be great, become a servant. If you want to be fulfilled and happy, pour yourself out for others in love. So just like the disciples had to leave behind their story, we need to leave behind ours and listen to Jesus. We need to learn from him and walk with him uh, because Jesus and, Je- and only Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. That's not just referring to how you get to heaven when you die. That's referring to how he's inviting us to live today. Let Jesus shape your story. And the thing is, when we do that, when we do let Jesus shape our story, the, the funny thing is, we do find ourselves, right? By, by looking to him and entering into his story, he shows us who we are. We, we become more and more our true, authentic selves. We find real fulfillment and happiness. The, thing, the things which uh, the expressive individualism story promised but can't deliver are found when we let Jesus shape our story. A lot of people think the transfiguration of Jesus was proof that he is divine, that he really is God. And of course, he is really God, but that's not what the transfiguration was revealing. One reason we know that is because in Luke's version of this story, he tells us that Moses and Elijah appeared in glory too. In other words, they were shining just like Jesus. And we know they're not God, so that can't be what that was proving. Well, Jesus himself said in Matthew 13 that in the kingdom of God, the people of God would shine like the sun. The people of God would be radiant with the glory of God, just like Jesus was up on that mountain. See, Jesus wasn't radiant because he was God. He was radiant because as a human being, he had utterly and fully chosen to live a life of self-sacrificing love. The transfiguration isn't meant to be just an image of what God looks like, although in a sense it is that because it's the fullness of God shining through Jesus. But the transfiguration is meant to be an image of what we can look like, what you can look like with the fullness of God, the fullness of his love and life shining through us. That's what he's inviting us into. That's what you were made for. You believe that? That's what you're made for, to shine with the glory of God. Each of us were made for that. And not just for someday in the distant future in heaven or in the new creation. I don't think the point of this is that we're going to glow like fireflies then, right? That's not what he's trying to get at. The point is that even now, as the kingdom comes now in us, on earth, 
as it is in heaven, as we listen to Jesus and let him shape the story in which we live, we become more and more radiant with the love and the life of God. Amen? You're never too old for that, I've been discovering. You know, I'm in this faith-walking process. I've mentioned a couple of times. It's just this process of just, uh, uh, it's kind of a discipleship process where we're learning a bunch of things, and it's, it's, it's bringing some change into my life. And just in a real practical example of how as you let him shape your story, it can change your life, um, I got to spend some time this week, twice, uh, up in Stevens Point with my mother and my younger brother. Now, I haven't had a good relationship with my younger brother probably ever that I can remember. I don't think I've talked to him had a, in a conversation in a decade. Um, but he was living up there, and, and partially, I think really is partially because of what God's been doing in me over this past couple of months, and partially because I had Lisa there helping me. Um, but um, uh, probably a big part of it too, but she was helping me do what I've been learning. Um, you know, we actually were able to connect, and I was able to help him out with some things. And, um, you know, it, we'll see where it goes, but it was more of a relationship over this past couple of days than I, like I say, that I've probably had in a long, long time. But that's, that's the chance God changing you, right? Yeah, it's really good. So um, that's what we're talking about. This isn't just like theory. This isn't just us glowing. I don't think I'm shining up here before you, but I think God's love was able to work through me in a way that it hasn't before because I was able to remove some of the things, some of the ways I would just react to him in the past. So, um, so that's a good thing, and that's what we want. That's where it gets real. So listen to Jesus. Let Jesus shape your story. Well, how can we do that? There are a lot of ways. Faith walking is one way, and we're going to have that initial retreat here in the fall, so we'll keep you posted on that. I'd love to have everybody get involved in that. I think it's a great process. But, but all of the spiritual practices we do here, that we teach here, help us with that. You know, whether it's uh, the prayer or the solitude or, or being in worship every Sunday that you possibly can, being in community with each other. These are all ways that we let Jesus shape our story. But there is one particular way that we can listen to Jesus and shape our story that I think is absolutely essential and it's very accessible to every single one of us. It's simply reading the Bible regularly. That's what it is. You know, Jesus speaks to us through the whole Bible. The whole Old Testament is an unfolding story that is pointing us to, directing us to, leading us to Jesus. So as we read the Old Testament, looking for that and asking, how is it doing that? How is this strange old story leading me or pointing me toward Jesus? We grow to hear his voice more and more clearly. And then the Gospels, of course, tell us the story of Jesus' life. We get to read about what Jesus did and what Jesus said, and through those words, Jesus speaks to us. And then the rest of the New Testament, the apostles are again explaining and applying everything that Jesus did and said. So through their words, through the apostles' words, we hear the voice of Jesus again speaking to us. And as we do that, as we listen to his voice, as we're reading it shapes our life. So I can't urge you strongly enough to simply make it your habit 
to read the Bible a little bit every day. There are a lot of apps out there these days that make it really easy to do that. So if you don't have one, you might want to try the YouVersion Bible. That's something a lot of people have been using and found very helpful. It's you, like Y-O-U, YouVersion um, Bible. It's, it's a great little app. You can put it on your phone. It'll set you up on a daily reading program if you want it to. Uh, it makes reading the Bible every day really easy to do. We've also created a devotional for Lent, which we'll be passing out um, next Sunday, I think is when it comes out, right? Next Sunday. So it'll be available next Sunday. That will have daily readings for the uh, weeks leading up to Easter. So again, it's another tool you can use, you can engage in to guide you into reading the Bible every day. Reading the Bible is not just about learning information. I mean, you'll do that, but that's not really even the main point. What we're doing is we're listening to Jesus through its words. And as we listen to his voice, he shapes us. He shapes the story we're living in. You were made to shine like the sun with the glory of God, beginning now in this life. So listen to Jesus and let him shape your story. Amen?